stop and consider your ways. We live in an extremely busy and frankly a self-absorbed culture in America. Between work schedules, vacation schedules, travel, local sports, entertainment, recreation, smartphones, social media, and countless other activities, that people spend very little time considering their ways and what they're doing. They, they spend very little time thinking about their goals, their callings, their responsibilities. They spend very, very little time thinking about their relationship with God, with, with the things of the Lord, and with their spiritual health. And the old adage that the, the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, is never more apparent than we see in the 21st century. There is tons out there to keep you busy. And he continues to gain more and more success in this area in our culture. Many are neglecting their own spiritual lives as well as the body of Christ and his church. And, and, and most of this is because we're too busy in our own affairs to think about the Lord's affairs. And, and a study from Lifeway in 2019, it showed that only 32% of Protestant churchgoers read their Bible daily. So this, this study was looking at the cream of the crop. Uh, really, this study is looking at people like us that are here. This isn't all the people that aren't in church today. This is the people that are coming to church. 32% read their Bible regularly. And we see that 70%, almost 70%, don't read their Bible daily. Uh, in, in fact, the same study, it actually said that almost 30%, 20%, don't even pick up their Bible in a whole week. They, they don't even look at it. And so the scary thing, the serious issue with that is we have a ton of people who are literally starving. Uh, we see the Bible is called what? The Word of God. It, it's, it's what we're to, it's the bread of life. It's what we're to eat, our daily bread. And, and we have tons of people that are literally starving from a lack of food from the Word of God. They're having to make big decisions or child rearing, raising their children without any idea of what God says about it. Uh, they, they're, they're trying to do marriage without any idea of what God's word says about it. They're trying to work at their job without any idea of what God says about that. And today, people are also neglecting attending the house of the Lord, the church. In, in 2002, ABC did a, a news poll, and it showed that 38% of Americans at that time in 2002 attended church regularly, came almost weekly, if not close to it. Uh, so at an average population at that time, about 287 million people uh, that meant about 114.8 million people attended church almost weekly uh, in 2002. Uh, and this actually, at the time when it came out, it was considered a very poor study. Uh, it was super disappointed. And at, at point, if you looked at the generation before that, that number was much higher, and, and they were, there were some concerns then. But multiple studies, according to churchleader.com, uh, if you look at it, they're actually saying today, in 2023, we're looking at well less than 20% that attend church regularly, probably around 17.2%. And so we look, the U.S. population today is 334 million is the newest estimate. And we multiply that by 17.2%, we get 56.8 million people attend church most weeks. However, so our, our nation's population since 2002 all the way to 2023 went up 15% is how much our nation's population went. But the people attending church regularly went down by almost 50%. I mean, we're looking, we went from 114 to 50-some million people. Uh, my friends, it's time for Christians in America to stop and consider their ways. And it's time for us as a church to stop and consider our ways as we look at a culture that continues to put God on the back burner, continues to push God to the closet of their life. So join me as prayers we start to this, this convicting and life-changing book of Haggai. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, I know that that initial start is kind of tough. Uh, It's tough to hear those stats. It's tough to see that even though our nation's populations went up 15%, our, our nation going to church has went down almost in half the amount of people. When we think of the, the number of people that are not attending church and not reading their Bibles, that are not having a relationship with you, that, that are lost, that number is staggering, even in America. And we look at the, the world, it's even, it's even higher. Uh, Lord God, I pray that you help us to, as we, as we get into this great new book, I'm so excited to, to preach on this new book of Haggai. It, it's so relevant and applicable to us today. It's amazing how, how a book so old can be so new as well in so many ways, written in the 500s B.C., how, how it still is so applicable some 2,500 years later. And that's because you're an unchanging God, but we're also an unchanging people. We are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. We are rebellious, and we want to do what we want to do. And we see that continue to come into our culture time and time again. We see it in this culture that we're about to read as well, that we are concerned about our own affairs and not your affairs, God. So, so forgive us for that. Help us to, to hear this warning, this word of the Lord that's about to come through Haggai, the prophet, to Israel. And may we heed this warning ourselves, knowing that we are just as prone to wonder we are just as prone to err in the way that Israel did. God, please speak through me, and may you open up our hearts and minds to hear your word. May your Holy Spirit illuminate the scriptures, and if anyone here does not know you, may they leave here knowing you. May they stop and consider their ways and know you fully, and for us who are, may we know you even more fully. We love you, Lord, and amen. So before we dive into the actual message, the actual scripture, I've given you all all a timeline. Hopefully you have it. If you don't, I think there's one over here, and it'll be up here as well. And this will hopefully help you to understand kind of where we're at in the Bible. Uh, If you don't know where Haggai is, it's almost to the end of the Old Testament. It's because we're getting closer. Uh, So so if you're you're in your Bible, if you go to Matthew, if you can find it, that's going to be the beginning of the New Testament. You go back a few books, you'll get to Haggai. Uh, You've got Malachi, Zechariah, then, then Haggai. Uh, it's only two chapters, so it can be kind of tough to find in your Bible uh, if, you're, if you're going through. Uh, if we're looking here, we see in 722, Assyria conquers the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember right, Israel was split into two kingdoms. Um, uh, right after Solomon, you have Rehoboam. He messes up as a leader and says he's going to be harder on him than even Solomon was. Well, the kingdom splits at that point. Eventually, that northern kingdom uh, they, they stay pretty much pagan just about the whole time. Southern kingdom has good kings, bad kings, kind of back and forth. God preserves them a little bit longer. Actually, they hold on for a, for a decent bit, time, a bit of time until 586. So Assyria conquers the northern kingdom, but then we get, we get Babylon co- conquers the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., and Israel is taken into captivity and Babylon. And at that time, this, the beautiful temple, if you remember Solomon, he built this extravagant temple uh, I mean, just incredible, and they destroy it. They completely demolish everything. No stone is left. The foundation is ruined and everything. Uh, then we fa- fast forward a few more years. We get to 539 B.C. Well, now Cyrus the Great uh, of Persia conquers Babylon. Uh, so, so, so now we have Babylon. Uh, it, it has just got conquered, who conquered Israel, uh, the southern kingdom. And, and this, this new king, it's amazing how God, you know, we see in the Bible that God holds all authorities in his hand. Uh, that, that, that he controls. And as we look at our world and we're like, God, it doesn't look like you're controlling it. God does control it sometimes in judgment. 
like we see with Israel. Uh, they're, they're cast into captivity, and, and God actually prophesies this is going to happen. Uh, like, you know, it's, it's his sovereignty. He is over everything. And then we see his mercy. And this guy, Cyrus the Great of Persia, conquers Babylon. And what's the, one of the first things he does one year later? He issues an edict that allows any of the Jews that want to go back to Jerusalem to go back, rebuild the temple, and restart sacrifices to the Lord. This pagan king shows favor and grace to Israel. Only by the hand of God does something like that happen. And so the, the, the foundation of the temple is laid, but the work stops at that point. And, and it's at that point, uh, a few years later, King Darius takes over. You can also see Darius, but Darius uh, takes over as king of Persia. Two years into his reign, we have Haggai the prophet brings the word of the Lord. So that's where we're at if we're looking at the timeline in Israel's history. And, uh, and that's kind of what, what brings us here. Uh, so in our account, as we get started, we're giving two major overarching challenges. As we look at Israel, we look at how they respond we see what we need to do as well. And number one, we need to stop and hear the word of the Lord. We need to stop and hear the word of the Lord. Let me read verse one. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, or the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. We got a few names here, thinking about naming future children, grandchildren there. Got some good ones there. Shealtiel, that's, that's a really good one. I like that one. Jehozadak, that'd be a good one too. Um, so we, we've mentioned who King Darius was and who Cyrus the Great was as, as kings of Persia, but who are Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua? Uh, we don't know much about Haggai other than he was a prophet. Actually, uh, seven out of the 11 mentions of his name uh, show that he's a prophet. It's just over and over and over again. He's mentioned Ezra twice uh, as well as we look. And, and the interesting thing about this two-chapter book is this, his whole ministry here, everything that we have, is 15 weeks long. Uh, he actually gives six distinct dates, day, uh, you're looking at day, month, and year, and his two chapters, which is actually more than any other prophet except for Jeremiah. So it's amazing. I mean, this guy's pretty thorough. We got Luke the physician's very thorough with his wordiness. Well, Haggai must have been an accountant or something like that because he loved numbers. He liked to give you the numbers, maybe an engineer, right? Um, we look at that. But then we come to Zerubbabel, and that's a fun name to say. Just try to say that a bunch of times in a row, Zerubbabel. And we don't know much about this guy either, uh, if we're looking. We just know he's a governor that's been appointed, and he's the son of Shealtiel. Now, if we look at Scripture, uh, we look back, and we actually see that the line of Shealtiel above, uh, that, that uh, Zerubbabel's grandfather was King Jehoiakim. And if you keep going, if you go to Matthew 1, 12 through 13, you can turn there in your spare time uh, and read through the genealogy of Matthew. And you look at that genealogy in Matthew, you look at the one in Luke, and sometimes you're like, why is this here? You know, I mean, you just read through it, you're like, this seems a bit excessive. Well, we see that Zerubbabel is in the line of Jesus Christ. So how, how amazing. This matters because Jesus Christ is part of this. When you're looking, hit his fulfillment coming and the, the favor shown to Cyrus, moving all of this forward, protecting Israel, keeping them as a nation. This is another one of those links in the chain that show that the Bible is all about the gospel. We just got through this morning talking about the tabernacle and all the parts of it and how it points to Jesus Christ. Well, here we even see the book of Haggai does what? It points to Jesus Christ. So putting these three, these three leaders together, the last one being Joshua, he was the high priest. Actually, the line of Aaron, he was a Levite. But so putting these three together, we have the prophet, priest, and king. Um, and we have the prophet, obviously, being Haggai, priest being Joshua, and the king or ruler, really the governor, actually, is Zerubbabel. 
And so looking back at verse 1, uh, before we move on to verse 2, we're told the Lord came to Haggai. And we're told that the word of the Lord came to him. And it comes on the first day of the sixth month. And that's, a, that's an interesting thing. If you look at Numbers 10.10, 10, the, the first day of the month was oftentimes the new moon. And it'd be a festival, a gathering of the people of Israel. Everyone would get together and feast and celebrate a new month at that time. And, and so there's, all, off, there's most likely, as, as Haggai comes to present the word of the Lord, most likely a pretty big gathering of, of Israelites in Jerusalem, at least most of the ones that, that came. There were a few uh, tens of thousands is what they, they think were probably there. Then we get to verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Well, first off, this message comes from who? Thus says the Lord of hosts. Have you all heard that name before? The Lord of hosts. This is a pretty strong name for God. The Lord of hosts is like the Lord of angel armies. It's a military word. It talks about a strong right hand. It's usually used in a, hey, you better listen because I'm powerful. I'm sovereign. I'm over everything. And if we look, you know, why, why does God choose to reveal himself with this name? Why is it not Yahweh? Why is it not God that, that just loves you, covenantal God? You know, wh why is there this power in his name as he mentions himself. And the reason is we were told that the people have said that it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord yet. And, and notice that what does God call them after thus says the Lord of hosts, these people. He didn't say my people. He says these people. He realizes this people is rebellious. They're stiff-necked. They're only focused on themselves. And this shows a clue of where the relationship of God and his covenantal people are right now. They are not obeying him. That is why they were led into exile in the first place, because they refused to repent, to respond to the word of the prophet Jeremiah and other prophets like him, and they continued in their wicked and adulterous ways, and idolatrous ways as well. And we see in the book of Ezra that there was actually some opposition that came when the Jews started to rebuild the temple. There were some people that weren't a big fan of that, and so they started to persecute a little bit, and that led to Israel halting the building of the temple. They continued offering sacrifices, but they stopped at the foundation. They just put the foundation on and started doing life as they saw fit. And this was a, a big deal, and you're like, well, I mean, they put the foundation, they were offering sacrifices, what else can you ask for? There was some persecution. Well, the issue is, God had promised to do what in the temple? to dwell there. So in essence, not building his house and offering sacrifices was saying, hey, we want to appease you, but we really don't care to have a relationship with you. We don't really care if you're around. We don't care if you come and fill the temple. We just don't want you to be mad at us. So, so it was like, hey, we're going to do just enough to keep your wrath away and keep us from going back to Persia and being carried off by another country. Uh, but, but we don't really care that you're not here in presence. That we don't really care about it. So that was a, a big deal. And so it's at this point that the word of the Lord comes and he calls them out regarding their disobedience. So they have now heard the word of the Lord for the first time since the exile in Babylon. But will they just hear it? Just like them, we need to not only hear the word, but we need to stop and heed the word of the Lord. We need to stop and heed the word of the Lord. And a sub-point here, A, as God calls us to repent as God calls us to repent. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you, to, for, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord, 
or the house by, by this while this house lies in ruin. It's the house of the Lord that lies in ruin. So the Lord first addressed the problem. He said, "Hey, you're you're not building the house. You're you're not. You've said it's not time to build the house." But in verses three to four, the Lord expounds upon this pro- this problem, and he says, "Hey, you're dwelling in paneled houses, while the temple lies in ruins. What what are you doing?" Uh, the term paneled houses lets us know that their houses were completely done. They had a roof, uh, they, they had sides to them, and, and actually when you use the word paneled, we see that with Solomon. He had a paneled house. Um, it, it means it's probably decorated too. Uh, you're, you're, pr- you're looking at it, it's probably complete. Their houses are complete, they're decorated, they have walls and roofs, uh, r- roofs on their houses. We see in verses 6 and 7 that people weren't abundantly, abundantly blessed, and we're going to see that as part of the judgment of God. So they weren't incredibly lavish, but they prioritized themselves and their houses before the work of the Lord. Not just their necessities, but they'd even decorated and beautified their own homes before getting to the Lord's house. This brings up an applicable point that can be true in our lives as well. Uh, Are we more zealous in advancing our own agenda or the Lord's plans and the Lord's purpose? Uh, Can we relate to Israel here? God's word is transcendent and applicable to all of us. Yeah, I think we all need to examine our lives in light of Israel's sin. We're, we're no better. We can do the same thing and neglect the, the work of the Lord for ourselves. And So do we think more about our own lives? Or do we think more about what the Lord wants us to do and what His calling upon us is? Uh, our culture is not about the Lord. So, so the natural way, if we're going with the flow, it's going to be to be about self, to, to get yours, to make sure you have yours. In Colossians 3, 2, Paul challenges us, set your mind, minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And he, it also takes effort not to be selfish and to think heavenward. Philippians 2, 21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So it's really hard to, see, it's, it's hard to avoid seeking, not seeking your own interests when everyone around you seems to be doing the same thing. And you feel like, well, I've got to get mine because they're getting theirs, and if I'm not, I'm not going to keep up, and that shows a neglect, a disbelief, a lack of faith in God's sovereignty, that he can provide for you even when it doesn't look like you're doing what everybody else is doing. You know, well, you know, so-and-so, they're putting 20% of their income back in retirement. I'm only able to put 8% because I tithe 10%, and and I'm not going to be able to retire. I'm not going to be able to make it. Well, that shows you lack faith. God will provide for you. God it says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I mean, it's amazing. He will care for you. I can tell you countless stories when we're in medical school and, and we don't have anything. And a check would come in the mail out of nowhere that would pay a bill that we had, you know, just we, it was just amazing what God would do when you prioritize giving and work for the Lord. But I can promise you one thing. If, if you are in Christ... Uh, there, there will always be opposition to the Lord's work. I, if God calls you to something, there will be opposition. Israel had opposition. You will have opposition. Satan doesn't want you doing the Lord's work. Now, if you're doing what you want to do, you're running life the way you want it, Satan will let you have that all day. It'll be the easiest life you've ever lived. You'll be able to, it'll be the, the path to hell is easy. It'll be easy. You know, he'll, he'll make sure you're comfortable. He'll make sure things, oh yeah, yeah, it, it'll be padded. It'll be, everything will be good. Because Satan doesn't care that you're doing your own work. He cares you're doing the work of the Lord. But you try to do something for the Lord, you take that first step in faith, you get punched in the face. I'm just going to be honest. That's what happens. You take that, something happens in your life. 
Satan and, his, and demons, they are real, and they will continue to wreak havoc on your life. But God is sovereign. He'll continue to pick you back up. And those times that look like the darkest times of your life are the times you'll look back and be like, wow, God grew me so much. He gave me perseverance. He helped me be strong in those moments. He is great and good. Moving back to our account, God reminds Israel that their, their short-sighted efforts are not without consequences. Let's look through 5 and 7. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God reminds them that they are not satisfied with their lives currently. He tells them that they sow, but harvest little. That they eat, but never have enough. That they drink, but never have their fill. They're clothed, but they're never warm. And they earn wages, though they fall through holes in their bags. Their plan of putting themselves first has consequences. And as believers, it has consequences in our lives as well. Obviously, we don't have the same covenant of prosperity that Israel had. If they obey, they would be blessed with financial wealth, with health, those kind of things. But we're, we, may, we may not be promised that, but under the new covenant, we are promised fulfillment, joy, and peace that God gives us as he walks with us if we are in Christ and we are obedient. But when you make your life all about you, I can guarantee you one thing is going to happen. If you are in Christ, now if you're not in Christ, you make your life all about you, you're going to be happy. You won't be joyous. Things are going to go wrong. You're going to have things, but, but you'll just find something else to make yourself feel better. You'll buy something else. You'll do something else. You'll enjoy some other earthly pleasure to, to put a band-aid on that pain until it comes back. But if you are in Christ, I can guarantee you one thing. If you live in sin, you will be miserable. And God is so amazing to not allow us to enjoy sin. You may enjoy it for a moment, but, but that pleasure is fleeting. Because Hebrews 12, 6 says that God disciplines those he loves. He chastises us. He will not allow us to be joyous in our sinful ways, and you will eventually be miserable in your sin if you are a true believer. So God calls you to consider your ways. Note how he bookends verse 5 and 7 when after he starts to speak. Consider your ways, and he ends it with consider your ways. And this is where I got the title for today's message. And I pray that today you stop and consider your ways. Ask yourself, how are you spending your money your time, your resources, your life. You only have one life to live. Are, are, you, are you managing it well? Are you stewarding this short life well? You don't know if tomorrow is even existent for you. If you went home today, would you say, I have managed my life well? Can, can you be sure that you'll get good, well done, good and faithful servant? Come enjoy the rest of your master, or are you going to get depart from me? I never knew you because you have stewarded your life unwisely, as Israel is at this point. Our God's a jealous God. He's jealous for your affections. Not jealous like we are, but he is jealous because he is the greatest good you could ever have. If your affections are placed on anything but God, it is as rubbish compared to how great he is. He doesn't want you to worship rubbish when you can worship the Redeemer. He is so much better than anything else in this world. And he calls you to repent of any area of your life where he is not number one. He should be number one in every aspect. And I pray that you do that today, brothers and sisters. If there's an area of your life where you're not giving fully, God fully credit, then please repent and turn to him. So next we see we should heed the word of the Lord as God calls us to respond. 
as God calls us to respond. Haggai 1.8 says this, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may, may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. After calling Israel to repent, he calls them to respond. Don't just feel bad about not doing the work of the Lord. Do the work of the Lord. Get to work. He tells them to go up on the hills, get some wood, and start building. I love the practicality of this message. I mean, it's just like, all right, you're not doing it. Well, go, go do it. I think this is so applicable to us to do. T today, as well, we have certain things in our, in our lives that we're just not doing. But God says, hey, I want you to do that. And you're just sitting back, sitting on your hands. God says, get in the game. Do the work. Kevin DeYoung, in his book called Just Do Something, encourages believers to be doers of the word. He warns strongly against the paralyzing uh, temptation of anxiety and, and how that can keep people from actually doing the work of the Lord. It, the, the Israel was anxious about what may happen if they continued doing the work. Persecution came, and they stopped dead in their tracks. Said, uh, they were anxious, and I love his quote. Anxiety is simply living out the future before it gets here. I, I love that, and it may even not be a real future that actually will get there, which is even the worst part of anxiety and worry. It may never even happen. It may be idle threats that people are making. It, it may be idle threats that Satan's making, but you need to trust your sovereign God that he will make it happen the way he wants it. This goes right, right along with Israel's sin. They have plenty of excuses for not finishing the work of the Lord. Uh, number one, they had persecution around them. They're like, eh, there's some bad things going on. I don't know. Number, number two, their money and finances were a little tighter. You know, they had their paneled houses. They had their houses done, but they weren't incredibly lavish. They could have had some extra decorations. They could have put some things in their yard. You know, they could have, so their money, their money and finances were tight because they needed, number, like number three, they had other things to do, like build their own house and make it really pretty and do what they wanted to do. Uh, if we look at number four, uh, they may have even theologically, this is one of the, 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 the most difficult ones to fight, for those who know the word or know enough of the word to where they can explain things away. Uh, and these are people that can twist the scriptures to say what it doesn't really say just so it fits them well. And they'll be like, oh, well, they, they may have said, you know, the Messiah, he is going to rebuild the temple, even though that would be an incorrect theology and understanding. Or number five, eh, they'll get to it when it's more convenient. You know, we'll, just, we'll just push it off for a little while. Uh, note that Israel didn't say they, were, they weren't going to ever rebuild the temple. And isn't that how Satan works, though? It's like, you know, if he knows how far he can push you, so if he can paralyze you and get you to be disobedient, you may not necessarily be living in a horrible way. You may not be living in a moral lifestyle and be debaucherous, but you're living in this lifestyle of sin that is disobedience. That You're just not taking that next step that God is calling you to take. And you're just living in that, that paralyzed moment where you're, you're not being obedient you remember in verse 2, it, they did say the people said it's, the time's not yet come. Well, did God tell them the time hadn't come, or did God tell them that the time had come to rebuild the house? It, yeah, absolutely. Like, they, they knew they were sent back to Jerusalem for that purpose. It was even super clear. Like, Cyrus sit, says, hey, go and, and go rebuild your temple. The, the king of Persia told them to do it. They, they had that as an edict, and they would have to know that came from God. Because what king, a pagan king, would tell them to do that? And they'd also been told that, it would, that they would be able to, 70 years later, that, that Israel would be back in the land, as Jeremiah had pr prophesied. But, you know, I think, I think today we're pretty good at rationalizing too, aren't we? I think rationalizing is one of the biggest sins we can do. And I'll be honest, I, I am really good at it. 
I can talk and be like, you know what, God, this is why this doesn't work. Uh, you know, this is why I should do it this way. And I, God usually just takes a two by four and whacks me in the head, knocks me down and says, hey, go do what I told you to do. Like, that's how my life works. Because I, I, can, I can come up with reasons why my idea might be better. Because it's easier, right? I mean, the easier idea is always the better idea. You know, why would I take the hard road whenever the easy road is right here? And we tend to gravitate toward things that are easy, that don't cost as much, uh, that, that, that aren't as dangerous, right? Uh, but that's not how God always works. Uh, so, so, ch so church, what are your priorities right now? What do you hold as most valuable in your life? And in order to figure out where you value things, there's really two places that we can look, that we steward. And, you know, we hear this a lot, how you spend your money and how you spend your time. You can see what you value at that point. So our fir your first priority, how do you spend your money? Is it for yourself first or is it for the Lord first? Do you give out of your first fruits or do you give, eh, here's a couple of cents to over? Uh, is God who you invest in completely? And then what is your first priority with your time? Your time is actually probably more of an asset than your money. You know, God, God can create more money, and God can even create more time. He's timeless. I get that. But, but we're, we're given a birthday and a death day. It's appointed a demand to die once and then face the judgment. We have a death day that is there. We can't add time to our life. Even the Bible talks about how we can't even add a single hour to our life through our worry or our anxiety. So here's the question. When you look at your time, how are you spending it? Uh, are you spending it in Bible reading ever? Are you spending it making church a priority, a, uh, or reading, praying a priority, church attendance a priority, or is it for your own pleasure and what you want to do and gaining the things of this world that are going to be destroyed, right? Moth and rust will destroy. When I was in medical school um, and I, I was newly married, I realized that I did something wrong, um, I married medical school instead of marrying my wife. And I paid dearly for that at the beginning. I, I, our marriage was struggling. It was because I was in sin and I was neglecting my wife who God had given me. And it wasn't until my pastor hit me with the word of God with a two by four, uh, pretty much. He probably did have to hit me a couple of times that, that, I, that I repented and I responded to it. And he reminded me that I needed to prioritize the Lord first and foremost in my life, not medical school, not no matter how quote-unquote glorious of a calling that was and how people's lives would be in my hands. I needed to trust God to sovereignly help me through those things, but still put him first. And when I, he told me when I looked at my calendar, I would know what my first priority was whenever I had all the required things or some things you have to do. You have your requirements. What's the next thing you put on there? Whenever you get your calendar, and I pray that you do use a calendar because you need to manage your money and your time intentionally. If you don't, it will manage you. Your money will manage you. It will tell you where it's going. Your time will tell you where you're going because you have to go there because you've neglected that and you've got to go do that. So have a calendar. Have a spreadsheet for your budget. That's another message for another time. Do that. Please do that. But, but, at, but when you get your calendar and you look, okay, what's the next thing I put in? It should be time with the Lord. You better have your Bible study daily. I don't care if you only have this much margin. You put it in there. After that, it's your spouse. It's your family. That's got to be next. It can't be your golf game. It can't be whatever hobby you have. It can't be whatever it is for you that makes you feel good. It has to be that. And that's what tells you what your first priority is. When you look at your calendar, what's the first thing you're like, I'm, I'm going to put this on there. This is it. Well, that, that's, your, that's your idol. If anything before God, whatever you're going to say, even if it's your spouse first before your Bible reading, that's a problem. You know, are, are, is your spouse your idol? You know, God has to be first, and then your spouse and your family have to be next in that order. 
And as you know, uh, you know what, like, I was really experiencing what Israel was at this time. I really felt like I, my grades were going well, but it was almost like there was a hole in my brain, just like a hole in their money bag. You know, they're putting money in, what's happening? Boom, boink, boink, boink. They make, they make money, and a lot of it, they're just trailing along. And that's how my study was. I would kill myself studying, 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 and it was just like stuff just went through holes in my brain. And I just couldn't, rec- couldn't get it all, and I was just struggling. I felt like I was on a treadmill. I couldn't do it, but mo- once my relationship with the Lord was right, my relationship with my wife was much better. It was amazing how my grades did better, even though I was spending less time studying. It's because God is sovereign. He blesses obedience. And I, I pray that you reorganize your priorities biblically, that you repent and respond. And finally, we need to heed the word of God as God calls us to recognize his sovereignty. As God calls us to recognize his sovereignty. Let me read verses 9 through 11. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because, or why, declares the Lord of hosts. Again, there's that name. Because my house, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Brothers and sisters, this is a tough word. People give all kinds of excuses why things happen, and we know that the sin of the world does affect everything, that, that it's not always based specifically on what you do. But we're, we're told here that we've got to recognize God is sovereign. He blesses and he takes away. That's our God. He is good, and he loves us too much to bless us when we're in disobedience, especially as believers. That is how we run. And Israel's struggling for harvest, for food, for finances. And he lets them know that their struggles are a result of his judgment on their disobedience. In light of his sovereignty and judgment, he calls them to repent, to respond, and to recognize that he is above everything. He is above all. He holds everything in his hands, my friends. He can bless you, and he can remove blessings. He can give you success, and he can bring you to ruin. So do we really respect God as sovereign over all? Do we recognize, church, that he is omnipotent, which means all-powerful, that he is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere at once, that he is omniscient, meaning he knows all things? Only when we truly recognize his power and glory can we trust in him in complete faith. That's why knowing the Bible is so important. We have to know who God is so that our faith is in him and him alone. Until we see how great and powerful God is, we'll never be able to trust him like one who jumps out of a plane skydiving. When that person jumps out, they have 100% confidence in that parachute. If not, they're dead, right? So they, they jump out with that parachute. And until we see God as more reliable than the most reliable parachute on the earth, you won't make the hard decisions that are required to be obedient to him. So I was only personally able to get back to my story I was only personally able to, to reprioritize my life, to make those hard decisions, to study less, even though I was like barely keeping up. And I was like, man, you know, the grades were going well, but barely. And I was only able to make that because I knew that God was big. My view of God continued to increase as I got more and more in his word. And I realized the God I served was much bigger than medical school, was much bigger than my step one board exam. It was much bigger than any board exams I would take in the future that he was sovereign and he would bless my, my change in priority. He would give me what I needed to get through. And only because my view of God was biblical was I able to take that step of faith. So if you struggle with faith, you need to know God better. Once you know who God is and you see how big he is, how powerful he is, it becomes so much easier to trust yourself in his arms because you see that his arms are so much bigger than yours that his power is so much 
bigger than yours. And friends, my grades did do better after that shift. He blessed sovereignly my obedience. And yes, medical school and residency were still tough. I didn't always feel blessed. There were times where it was tough. But I look back, I can see him blessing each step of the way. Times of obedience, blessing. Times of disobedience, not blessing. Sometimes even cursed. So I, I can promise you, he is sovereign. And I do pray, pray that we recognize his sovereignty, that we respond and re, we repent. If you've never responded or repented to the gospel, you've never, you've never repented and responded to the gospel, I should say, I pray that you do that today. We were, we were introduced to Zerubbabel and how we saw that he is in the line of Jesus Christ. This, this account matters because a descendant, the one who descended of David, who would eventually be an ancest, ancestor to Jesus Christ, is here. And, and that man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, was, uh, came to earth as a man 2,000 years ago. And he lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, as we all should know here. That he rose from the dead three days later. And he's the reign of the Father. If you've not repented and responded to that, you haven't recognized that he is sovereign, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life, I pray that you do that. You can have eternal life and be born again. For us who are all already believers, I pray that we also repent and respond and recognize God's sovereignty in our lives too. Because we can so easily make God so much smaller than he really is. May we see him for the God that he is. I pray that you've evaluated your life, that you've, that you've stopped and considered your ways today. And I, I know that the Holy Spirit, if he's in you, he's brought something to the forefront because none of us are perfect. He's brought something in your life that you're like, I need to consider my ways in this area. That's an area that I need to take a step of faith. I need to be obedient in this area. I need to take this leap and say, okay, God, I trust you. I'm in your arms. I'm not going to try to do it all on my own. I'm going to walk in obedience to you. And I pray that if he's revealed that, that you take whatever step or steps forward to be obedient to him. Because the Lord promises that he's going to continue working in us who are his. Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will complete what he started. Our God is a God of finishing. Those who are truly his, he will continue our work, his work in us. I pray that we stop and consider our ways as we recognize his sovereignty, we repent, and we respond to his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the, for the beauty of your word, for the, just how applicable this book from 2,500 years ago is to us today. How as I preach this, how I just see this working in my own life, in my own obedience and disobedience, God, how quickly I can disobey and how quickly you discipline, and I thank you for that. If there's anyone here that's going through that discipline, that's continuing to disobey, God, I pray that they repent that they respond, that they recognize that you are sovereign. If there's anyone here who has continued to disobey by not coming to you in a saving faith, they continue to, to, to do life the way that they want to do it, that they just, have, they just keep themselves busy so that they don't have to stop and consider their ways. They don't have to stop and consider their eternity. God, may, may you convict their hearts right now as, we, as, I, as I pray, and may you save their souls. And as we get ready to do communion in a moment at the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of who you are and what you did for us, God. So, Lord God, I just pray that you convict hearts here. Uh, all of us are sinners. All of us have areas of our lives where, where we need to stop and consider our ways and repent and respond to you. All of us can recognize your sovereignty in a bigger way because our minds just can't wrap around a God who is in control of everything. But, God, I just pray that you reveal whatever areas in our lives we need to hand over to you in a greater way and how much more we need to trust you. We thank you, we praise you, we love you. And amen.